0: Hi there. Welcome to Active Intelligence. I'm Aaron Ironside. I hope you've got around about half an hour to spend as we dive deep today into a very important social issue and try to explore it from a perspective that you might not normally get to hear about as we offer some balance rather than some bias. Now I'm no conspiracy theorist, but today we ask the question, is there an agenda of cultural Marxism at play right here in New Zealand? We'll take a look at that today on Active Intelligence. On today's episode, I catch up with Dr. Elizabeth Taylor. She's the Director of Research for the Australian Christian Lobby. And we'll explore some of these deep questions about whether or not we are in fact engaged in a culture war here in New Zealand. Now, let me start by saying so often conservative people are criticized for wanting to talk more about cultural wars than about the real life issues that people are facing uh, in this modern world. And that's a fair critique but it's often used also to extinguish conversation, to say, well, let's not talk about that. And I can't help but wonder if that's because actually we don't really want to ask this question for fear of the answer. Is there a cultural war at play? And before we take a look at this idea of cultural Marxism that many are beginning to fear is right here in New Zealand, let me make a comment about the fact that oftentimes we believe things but we don't know why we believe them or where the idea came from. Let me give you an example. The idea that we'd all happily agree with that all people are created equal and that they should be able to vote in a democracy. Many of us assume that idea came from the Greeks who gave us democracy, but the Greeks didn't believe that all people were equal. A of their world were slaves and voting was very much the domain of the elite, the citizens. It's only now that everybody is a citizen simply by being born in the country. In fact, we get this idea that all people are equal from the Bible. Even though you might not believe the Bible, you probably believe something that the Bible teaches. And it's that idea that I think we need to hold in tension today when we realise that many of us may not believe in cultural Marxism in its totality But some of us may have adopted some of its ideas. So where did it begin? We have to go back 100 years. I know it seems like things have changed so quickly in more recent times, but actually it was 100 years ago, when a group of German-Jewish thinkers couldn't work out why there hadn't been a Marxist revolution in Germany like they'd seen in Russia. I mean, the aspiration sounds pretty fair, doesn't it? This idea that there really shouldn't be this huge divide between the rich and the poor, uh, that some people who are economically elite did nothing to deserve that uh, particular status and power that they enjoy. And It wouldn't be nice if we all kind of were able to have a good amount, a fair amount. As an aspiration, that sounds fine. The problem was, as Russia quickly found out, that instead of everybody having plenty, the only thing that everybody could have was poverty, and that was not a good answer. Communism had failed, and equally, of course, it turned out that not everybody wanted to try this experiment, and the communist answer to that was to kill dissidents, millions of them. And so what happened? Uh, in the 1920s, when it became apparent that
1: economic Marxism hadn't worked. The roots of cultural Marxism are to be found in what is commonly known as the Frankfurt School. The term arose informally to describe the thinkers affiliated, or merely associated with, the Frankfurt Institute for Social Research at the Goethe University in Frankfurt, Germany, during the interwar period. Critical of both capitalism and Soviet socialism, they sought to address the perceived shortcomings of classical Marxism in the pursuit of societal change. Today, its influence is felt throughout Western academia, dominating the social sciences and humanities, gender studies and whiteness studies being two such examples. One of the most influential critical theorists and an original member of the Frankfurt School was Herbert Marcuse, A cursory glance at any paragraph written by Marcuse will set alarm bells ringing for anyone even remotely familiar with the current culture of intolerance on college and university campuses. Consider the following passage from his 1965 essay, Repressive Tolerance. The small and powerless minorities which struggle against the force consciousness and its beneficiaries must be helped. Their continued existence is more important than the preservation of abused rights and liberties, which grant constitutional powers to those who oppress these minorities. Social justice, feminism, neo-progressivism, and post-colonialism, to name but a few, are all movements inspired by or born out of critical theory, and thus all come under the umbrella of cultural Marxism. Be it gender, sexual orientation, family, race, culture, or religion. Every aspect of a person's identity is to be questioned, every norm or standard in society challenged, and ideally altered in order to benefit supposedly oppressed groups.
0: So if you've heard of the Frankfurt School, now you have a sense of where some of that comes from, where instead of economic Marxism being the idea, now it was a kind of social Marxism. Uh, Instead of there being the economically powerful and the economically elite, uh, what if there were certain sort of social structures that were just implicitly geared towards kind of oppressing people and that actually all forms of power needed to be dismantled and for some reason. That sexual identity and behaviour seemed to be a place where those ideas could be explored. So let's skip up now, a hundred years later, to how these ideas are playing out in real life. Now remember that when the original Marxists couldn't get people to comply, they killed them. Well, we're much nicer a hundred years later. Now we don't kill you if you disagree. But we might take you to court as a Vancouver dad found out when he dared to tell his daughter that her inclinations, that she was in fact a trans male, were wrong. And he ended up in the courts.
2: Because here I am sitting there as a parent watching a perfectly healthy child be destroyed. And there's nothing I can do but sit on the sideline and, according to Justice Bowden at the time, cheer it on. I could only affirm or get thrown
1: in jail
3: past 11 months, Canadian father Robert Hoogland's now 15-year-old daughter has been receiving testosterone injections by court order. The process began in late February of last year when Justice Bowden of the British Columbia Supreme Court ruled that the then 14-year-old girl should be medically transitioned to a boy regardless of the wishes of either of her parents. While the girl's mother was willing to cooperate, her father was distraught.
2: This will not change her DNA, she will not become a boy. It can lead to increased heart disease and and, and other risks of that nature. Different types of cancers, because they're going to be stopping her puberty, her bone density will, will stop right where it is. And I kept saying, no, this is not going to happen, I'm not consenting.
3: According to the courts, however, Rob's consent wasn't relevant. In fact, Justice Bowden went one step further, declaring that Rob and his wife had to affirm their daughter's new gender identity. Rob was told that if he tried to dissuade his daughter or referred to her as a girl, he would be considered guilty of family violence. The night of the ruling, Rob granted an interview to the Federalist lamenting the state-sponsored transition of his mentally vulnerable daughter. He also pointed out that his daughter was biologically a girl and would simply have her health impaired by high-dosage testosterone. The interview infuriated the BC Supreme Court a few weeks later Justice Francesca Mazzari convicted Rob of family violence for using female pronouns. To make sure Rob didn't refer to his daughter as a girl again, Mazzari signed a protection order authorizing the police to immediately arrest Rob without warrant if he was caught referring to his daughter as a girl or with female pronouns.
2: And and even in the the Mazzari ruling, I mean, it it said that I could only think thoughts that were contrary to what the Bowden ruling was. The court was gracious enough to say that they could not police my thoughts, essentially but everything else they
0: could. So this is where the cultural war begins to bite, when we start to see these echoes, again, that dissent is not permitted and that there's this idea that actually the way forward is to dismantle everything, to destroy uh, the very foundation blocks of the society so that we can rebuild one based on some kind of equality. And again, some of those ideas sound quite nice on the surface until you realise what it's going to take to fulfil that vision. Which is why I caught up today with Dr Elizabeth Taylor, who is the Director of Research for the Australian Christian Lobby. Now I know that I've already tried to explain the origins of this thought earlier in the episode, but they're kind of complex, so I asked her to give us her brief explanation of where this thought began.
4: Well, if you want to go back to the beginning, it probably started with the Enlightenment, but um, what's happening now... In terms of the transgender movement, is actually quite radical, um, and I th- think you could probably pick the the changing point in the transgender movement, the beginning of that, to 2006, 2007, when the Jakarta Principles were written. So before that, the international LGBT movement had a Declaration of Sexual Rights, and then, and that was promoted by various NGOs. With UN consultative status, but then in 2006, this group of self-selected human rights experts met in Jakarta, in Indonesia, and they added transgenderism to the list of things that they were going to advocate for. And this, um, and this is now that the um, declaration, I suppose, that is picked up by international LGBT groups. It, so it includes transgenderism for the first time because the group of experts from Jakarta included four transsexual. Um, lawyers, including one who's particularly noteworthy, Martin Rothblatt. And Martin Rothblatt uh, has significant interests in the pharmaceutical industry, but is also uh, very keen to promote transgenderism as a segue to transhumanism. So he thinks that the tyranny of the male-female binary bodies it is a is a horribly oppressive thing. It, he likens it to South African apartheid, and because um, it divides us into categories, we shouldn't have that. And he he, he really sees transgenderism or as a way of conquering the body. So he, he's against something that he calls fleshism, which is the tyranny of being embodied. And what he's advocating is something uh, very different. So so that's really where the Dr Carter principles come from. But it's important to notice that I, I think it's in some ways bizarre that the LGBT that the old gay rights movement has allowed itself to be captured in this way because um, obviously biological sex is fairly significant, foundational indeed to the identities of gay people. I am a gay man because I fancy men male people or I'm a a lesbian woman because I fancy I'm attracted to uh, female bodies so when you're worshipping at the shrine of masculinity it doesn't make any sense at all to say oh actually adult bodies don't matter they they matter intensely to to the old gay rights movement so it's a, a departure for them which I think is worth pointing out
0: Well, in terms of that issue around the body, of course, the other part of the movement that I'm having trouble locking on to, because on the one hand, the narrative around being gay was I'm I'm born that way. And so my my biological state includes being same sex attracted. But transgenderism says actually uh, how I'm born is kind of irrelevant because this whole idea of gender is more of a social construct. It's some idea that we've come up with. And therefore, the body doesn't matter. Well, which is it?
4: Um, it depends who you talk to. So the LGB- the old gay rights movement was always divided into radical camps and moderate camps. So the Born That Way the idea was first suggested by um, Richard Kraft von Kraft Ebbing, his name was, a German writer who wrote a book in 1886, I think, called Psychopathia Sexualis. And he suggested that the perhaps same-sex attraction was the result of fetal anomalies. I mean, they didn't really understand very much about hormones in those days, but he thought perhaps it was possible for a female brain preloaded with female sexual interests to be born in a male body. And perhaps he still thought that mostly homosexuality was acquired through vicious behaviour, but he was prepared to, you know, sort of float the idea that maybe in some cases uh, it could be congenitally acquired. And then if you... Read Havelock Ellis, who's a sexologist in the 1930s, he was saying that this idea had really gained traction, not because it was scientifically proven, they had no way of saying it, but because it sort of was a nice way of letting same-sex attracted people off the hook. They didn't have to be perverted and morally depraved. They could just be born that way. But the problem with that, politically speaking, was that it gives you a permission structure for same-sex attraction, but not for homosexual behaviours. Homosexual behaviours, Havelock Ellis was still obliged to say were, you know, immoral. So then you get to, so, so that's where the, the the moderates are coming from. So they've got identity, but they haven't got behavior. They haven't got a permission structure for behavior, but they have got a, a sort of way of letting homosexual identities off the hook. And then you get Kinsey in the 1940s and 50s, and his ideas were very different. He said, no, 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 homosexuals are no different from anybody else. And the problem is that all of humanity has been oppressed by this terrible tyranny of, of you know the idea that some sexual behaviors are bad and we should actually just dis and all that whole structure. So in fact, you can't distinguish between homosexuals and heterosexuals except that homosexuals are a bit more liberated and they don't care about social convention. They're not oppressed. But the theory is that if we just removed the um constraints on sexual behavior that we've inherited from superstition and uh, you know this religious um past, then we would all be free to enjoy whatever sexual impulses that we liked. The problem politically with Kinsey is that you have a permission structure for behaviours, but you don't have an identity group to lobby for. You're saying you're not saying these poor people need to be treated differently and we need to be kind to them. You're saying we should all be free. And, and that's absolutely radical. So Kinsey, when I first read Kinsey, I was shocked. I was going, you can't possibly mean, you know bestiality and incest and all the taboos. And absolutely he does. Pedophilia is fine as far as Kinsey's concerned. So so this is a radical program that probably not many people are going to sign up to. And then in 1948, you you get the fusion of these ideas from um, a guy called Harry Hay, who was the father of the gay rights movement. And Harry Hay was an admirer of Stalin and also of Kinsey. So he realized that if you kind of join Kinsey and Stalin up together, then you can uh, create the view of homosexuals as a people group a quasi-ethnic people group who have been historically oppressed because they're always living within a moral system that does that regards them as deviant and different so then you have a, a means of advocating for this quasi-ethnic people group that has its own history and its own culture and its own practices and then it becomes possible for the gay rights movement to lobby for um uh, civil rights style arguments. Here is this people, but it's not an individual identity anymore. It's a group identity. You become homosexual by belonging to this people group. Anyway, so when you sort of track identity and behaviour through the movement like this, and it, it changes further down the line, but that's really where you get the radicals masquerading as moderates. So they can track along with the moderates from that moment. And you really, I mean, Harry Hay started a group called the Mattachine Society. And there, there was a event got kicked out of it. But there's a branch of the Mattachine Society that just wanted to um, lobby for gay people to be able to live their lives quietly without persecution and to not be discriminated against. Then there's the radical branch of the same group that was saying, no, no, we want to change all of society. So that's really the the two um, aspects of the gay rights movement that have been um, tracking along together harmoniously. Uh, up until now but they have very different objectives one wants to change the world one wants to just fit in the world with the world as it is
0: Well, in that regard, wanting to fit in, that's certainly not a problem. Uh, We all understand how difficult it is in life to feel like you don't belong, like you're on the outer. So I don't think anybody would misunderstand the desire to simply be accepted and in that sense, of course, tolerated to live the life you want to live. So the practicality part, I think, is easy for most of us to adopt. And of course, in that sense, we're tempted then just to accept everything hook, line and sinker, perhaps because we're not aware that there is this ideology now that sits behind in the shadows behind this practicality, uh, an ideology we might call cultural Marxism. What is that?
4: So, cultural Marxism is the translation of economic Marxism into culture. It became fairly clear with the, you know, the way things were working out in the Soviet Union by the 60s that uh, that economic Marxism wasn't the answer to everybody's problems, and it became very difficult for Marxists in the West to advocate that. So what they did was they shifted to cultural Marxism, and what cultural Marxism does is it says the systems of oppression are not just economic; they're built into our institutions and our belief systems and the way that we view the world. And there are sort of um, three, three ugly sisters is what I call them of cultural Marxism. Critical race theory is one that says no, the, the world is built in inherent racial inequality and there's no way of um, redeeming the existing social order. We need to tear it all up from the foundations. And then there's another one is is queer theory, which regards, oh, and feminism is the third. The, the um, not radical feminism, but the third wave feminism is the is is also based on critical theory. It says no, no, there is this invisible patriarchy that we need to eradicate. And then queer theory says there is a hierarchy of sexualities that posits heterosexual reproductive monogamy as the highest form of sexual expression, and it regards others as lower. And so what we need to do is to um, dig up these hierarchies and make all sexual expressions equal. We need to make all racial um, groups equal. And they're looking at equality of outcome, not equality of... Anyway, there's, there's all sorts of problems with critical race theory one of, one of the, the most, uh, well, anyway, I could go on and on about how terrible I think um, critical theory is, but this is basically coming to queer theory, which is now being taught. If you look at um, the way sexuality is taught at university, um, then, then you'll be getting critical theory. That's yeah, been translated. So, so Marxism has come from economics into critical theory, and then it's come into feminism, critical, theory, critical race theory, and, and queer theory.
0: So it seems that ideology is winning the day is there any science to back up this ideology
4: no 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 it's, it's quite um cultish and strange when you get into it it's based on the idea that all of our beliefs may be wrong there's no and of course relativism helps with this there's no way to say that your truth is more true than my truth and even though you can say well look there are good outcomes if we live this way and there seem to be bad outcomes if we, then no it's all the systems it's the invisible system so um with, with with queer theory, you, you do get into a, a belief system. So for example, um, Judith Butler I'll, I'll, I'll carry on tracking from Harry Hay. So We've got Harry Hay who says we've got this people group who are who are homosexuals. And then if you go a, a little bit further along the next sort of hero of the movement or one of them was um, Gail Rubin, she was an anthropologist and she looked at gay communities and she said, well, being homosexual isn't the defining characteristic of all of these communities. There's actually lots of different people who are into different things. She was studying BDSM groups in particular and she uh, she said actually the only thing that makes these groups stick together is a common experience of oppression, of um, that they're sexual erotic dissidents, she called them sexual heretics. And so once you you say, well, the queer community, and you'll notice the language has changed from gay rights to queer community. The the only the thing that oppresses them, the thing that defines this community, is their common experience of oppression from heteronormativity. So heteronormativity is the system, you see, that they need to pull down. They, the heteronormativity is the idea that we are male and female and all being, well, you know, boys will probably grow up to quite fancy girls and they'll get married and have children. Well, this, if you listen to the Marxists, is um, a system of indoctrination. We've been told wrongly that this is normal. We've been set up in life to expect that we'll be attracted to the opposite sex and that we'll get married and have children, thus cunningly reproducing the workforce for the benefit of our overlords. So it's all a trick. The whole system is is wrong. And what you can um so they believe they're enlightened. They're, they've 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 got new truth, you see, they've seen past the lies of heteronormativity. and really now what they're saying is homophobia or transphobia is not actually being nasty to trans or homophobic people. It's they they're attacking the belief system. If you believe in the normalcy of gender congruence and heterosexual attraction, that makes you a homophobe, and you're backward and oppressed but you're also quite dangerous because you're um, not letting people live as they would truly if they were free. You are part of the system of oppression because you're propping up this false ideology that is based on heteronormativity. So that's where they get, oh, so then you get along to Judith Butler, who, you know, because obviously that wasn't going too well, wasn't gonna get too far. And she realized that this is the problem. You can never talk about minority groups without othering them. So if we talk about transgenders, we're implicitly saying transgenders are different to other people somehow. If we talk about homosexuals, we're talking about them as different to a norm. So we're implicitly pointing to a norm and reinforcing that norm. And heteronormative tools are not adequate to um, explain queer experiences in the way that they wanted to. So Judith Butler suggested that the answer was to just get rid of the male-female binary. to to say, no, no, we've been oppressed by the tyranny of nature into believing that there is any significance to our male or female bodies. And if we just erase that significance and refuse to acknowledge it, if we become gender outlaws and we really become non-binary, well, then suddenly um, male-female distinctions collapse And also the system that holds women in oppression to the patriarchy collapses and homosexual, heterosexual distinctions also collapse. So all of these things that are built on the male-female binary suddenly just, you know, blur. And she thought that this would be the way to freedom. So that's really, we've been chugging and then a bit further along you get the Jakarta principles, which are sort of enshrining that in law. So that's where we're getting to. But the whole point is attacking the systems that we thought were natural, right? We thought that biological reality said that we were male and female. Well, they're saying, whatever those differences are, you've invested them with significance. And that significance is socially constructed. And we can just decide that those differences are not significant after all.
0: For many of us, simply acknowledging (laughs) the observable reality of boys and girls seems like common sense. Unfortunately, it's a common sense that's now being driven underground. People also are aware that you're not supposed to say that and so even though they might privately believe it, they often play along with this cultural narrative, feeling perhaps that the genie is out of the bottle, that there's nothing really that can be done to reverse this trend. As we finish today, what can we do? Those of us who hold to a common sense that says, actually, there is a thing as boys and girls and there's nothing wrong with that and this is going too far too fast
4: okay yes I think people will respond if they realise that the next step is not the end game It's not just a simple matter of we'll give them this and they'll go away and be happy. No, no, they actually have a radical agenda and they won't be uh, happy until they've actually imposed their own ideology. They've replaced queer normativity instead of heteronormativity. And that's why they're going after the children, of course, because children can be uh, moulded. So it's not just a question of going along with the language for a quiet life. That language is really significant. And Judith Butler knew that because what she was saying is, our beliefs in the significance of male and female are built into the language. So we need to get rid of the language and then that significance will disappear. You haven't got a word for something, it's because it's not culturally significant. And you can actually reverse engineer that. So you take away the words and then you take away the abstract concepts that are attached to those words. So it's a massive uh, agenda to change culture. We can, you know, at least acknowledge biological reality and refuse to use their intellectual concepts in exactly the same way that they refuse to use ours. And I, I don't think that this is a radical social experiment they acknowledge that humanity's never been down this path before mainly for the reason that you know we are sexually dimorphic and human reproduction depends on noticing the significance of male and female bodies so uh, th- this is an absurd cultish sort of um, mentality as far as i can tell and you know, we, we won't make them happy by cooperating. I think that's once you realise that, then you sort of give up trying.
0: So it would appear, according to Dr Elizabeth Taylor and plenty of other commentators, that there is in fact a cultural war at play. Of course, it's masked by the fact that many of us are sympathetic to the actual needs and issues. The discrimination against gay people is wrong. But this cultural Marxism that says the answer to that then is to destroy the notions of boys and girls Well, that's just simply too far. Now, I understand that Dr Elizabeth Taylor is saying that really we we shouldn't participate. We should resist at all costs. But I think we have to have a more nuanced approach to that. I know that because in my own family, there are those who are expressing a transgender identity. And I know it will serve me no purpose at a personal level to seek to hurt or offend that person. But I do think there are some ways in which we need to uh, push back. One is to make sure that we are just as passionate, just as committed to celebrating the beautiful, unique distinctions between boys and girls, between men and women. I think there's two arenas where we really need to work a lot harder rather than the personal, and that's in the arena of education where young minds are now being shaped uh, to believe something because they've not been given access to any other points of view. And I think in the arena of medicine, because I suspect that there are many medical professionals who feel like they cannot speak up, they cannot express their concerns or their disagreement. And we know that from a medical point of view, there's some real challenges To this, because it's important that if your body is male, if your body is female, that it's treated as such in a medical way. So I think education and medicine are two big areas. The third one, of course, is law, because law is the way in which the modern democracy executes its kind of socialist-communist tendencies. Not that I think that they're necessarily as elevated as the fear-mongers would say, but they're certainly there in that we have to resist laws that prevent us from discussion, That prevent us from exercising personal freedom, that these are such important ideas in a civil society, that as important as it might be to make sure that gay people are not discriminated against, it's equally important that I get to have my personal freedoms, and that the government does not impose its view on me, or as a parent, on my family. What do you think? It's a controversial topic. There's no obvious right answers to all of this in terms of how we navigate the complexity of this world. I'd love to hear your thoughts. You can get in touch. Uh, Go to the website, activeintelligence.nz. Make sure you hit that subscribe button, then we'll send you every episode. We'll see you next time on Active Intelligence.